Uh, hey, we're going to be in Romans chapter 6, and so if you go ahead and take your Bible out and turn there, and we've been, in this, uh, we've been studying the book of Romans for some time now, and I just want to say it's been so good for me, it's been so good for my life, you know, just thinking about uh, all the times that I've turned to Romans 6, 7, and 8 throughout my Christian life, you know, looking for answers, and it's so, so powerful. The title today is Set Free. And I'm so excited about what we're going to be talking about today uh, because this has really been transformational in my life, and I'm excited to share this with you. Thank you for being here today. You know, as I was driving here today about 7 o'clock this morning, 7.15, uh, two or three of my neighbors were out mowing their grass, you know. And uh, thank you. Thank you for sharing your Sunday with us. It means a lot to us. It really does. So the Apostle Paul is dealing with a very important subject here in Romans chapter 6, and one that we really need to understand because it deals with you and I in our ongoing battle with sin. You might read Romans chapter 6, and you might think to yourself, hey, I'm set free from sin. I don't have to worry about that ever, ever again. But notice verse 1. He says, what shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? Some professing Christians are out there who might say something like this, I'm cloaked in God's grace. I've been clothed in God's grace. He loves me just as I am. Uh, you know, I've got my get out of hell free card and I can just go on and on and on in this lifestyle of sin. I know God's word says it's sinful, but God's forgiven me. So I can keep going on in that and I'll go on and on into the future. This is a person that is living in open sin. They're using grace as what the Bible calls as a license for sin. You have a license to drive or something like that, so you get to drive. They're using it as a license to sin. They're flaunting their sin. And there have always been those people around the church and in the church who use grace, the grace of God, the forgiveness of Jesus, as a, a cover for sin. And what they're doing is they're mutating, they're adulterating the grace of God into a license for a sinful lifestyle. For example, in, in uh, Jude chapter 1, verse 4, I think it says judge up on the screen. I apologize. We'll say Jude. Certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have slipped in among you in the church. They're in the church. They're ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality, and they deny Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, for someone who would say grace is a license for sin, he goes on later in the chapter, he says, I can't even imagine that someone would even think that. The grace of God, if it's real in our life, if it's functioning in our life, it affects our entire outlook on sin. The grace of God is not permission to sin. It's a new power over sin. And I found this fantastic book at a garage sale years ago, a great English preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he said this, Romans 6 is a teaching that puts a man on his feet and enables him to realize who he is, what he is, and what is being done to him under the power and the reign of grace. So it should lead him to triumph and rejoicing in his victory. Now, we today are landing on verse 15. Look at verse 15 of chapter 6. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Notice the subtle difference, though, between verse 1 and verse 15, if you have your Bible open. Verse 1, Paul says, shall we go on sinning? And verse 15, he says, no. And then verse 15, shall we sin? By no means, he says. Here's the question he's addressing now. Can a Christian deliberately choose to sin just occasionally? You know? 
Not like I'm going to dive into the deep end of the pool of sin. I just want to take a little dip in the wading pool. You know, that's all I really want to do. And I know God's going to forgive me. And this is the situation that all of us face almost every day. And many times we're kind of confronted with this idea, this feeling, well, why not just give in just, just once or twice? You know, what's the harm in that? I'm, I'm, I'm going to be forgiven. Uh, God's going to restore me. You know, I heard that one guy give his testimony at church. You know, he was addicted to crack, you know, and he was addicted to methamphetamines, et cetera, et cetera. Then he surrendered to Jesus and his life has been restored. And now he's got, you know, he's got the big car, the big church, the hot wife. He's got all that good stuff now. God will restore me. And I'm not like those who are going to flaunt their sinful lifestyle like I see on TV and in parades and things like that. No, I'll keep it a secret. I'll keep it hidden. No one else is going to know. And as a Christian, if you deliberately sin, even occasionally, then Paul is going to tell us here, then you have to face what the power of sin will do to you. Grace will not prevent the consequences when you do what you know to be wrong. Look at verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, notice how he personifies sin, sin here, someone. You are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, and you have been set free from sin. You have become slaves to righteousness. Look at verse 19, though. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. I appreciate what Anna said a few moments ago. Sometimes we have to put our, our body in a position for our spirit to follow. You know, the spirit is willing so many times, but the flesh is weak. And just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness, or you might say separateness, differentness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. And I have an exclamation point in my Bible because Paul is emphatic here. But now... One of the two most powerful words in your Bible, but now that you have been set free from sin, you become slaves to God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. And verse 23 caps off this chapter so powerfully. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What you see Paul doing here in the last half of chapter six is he's kind of like a highway patrolman when the bridge has been washed out and the highway patrolman is out there. He's got his lights on and he's waving that red flashlight and he's trying to say, you know, hey, the road ahead is very, very hazardous, right? Don't go this way. And if we as followers of Jesus willingly and deliberately choose to sin, the road ahead is so, so dangerous. He says, first of all, that sin is gonna sell you into slavery. There's a man named Solomon Northrup. He lived in New York back in the early 1800s. He was a man of African descent, but he was born free in New York State. And he farmed and he played the violin for extra money. And he was offered a chance to play in Washington, D.C. 
And the two men who offered him a chance to kind of go on this little mini tour of Washington, D.C. were con men. Maryland, where Washington, D.C. is, was a slave state at that time. But the money was good, and the money tempted him. And while he was in Washington, D.C., the two con men drugged him, they kidnapped him, they took him to the slave market, and they sold him for $650, which was a huge amount of money in those days. And when he awakened, up, when he awakened in the slave market, he began to demand his legal rights, but no one would listen. And they began to beat him and began to demand, don't you ever, ever say that you're a free man ever again. He was shipped to a plantation down in New Orleans, which that's where this, the phrase getting shipped down the river came from. You got shipped down the river and your fate was doomed. And he spent the next 12 years of his life as a slave. You might've seen the movie, 12 Years a Slave. And a committed Christian named Samuel Bass heard his story and at great personal risk, he contacted the New York governor and it was against the law for Solomon Northrup to be enslaved. Legally, he was a free man. Eventually he was set free and he went home to New York and he wrote his memoir. But think about this. He wasn't supposed to be a slave. Legally, he was free. But when he got himself conned, he got too close. And when he got too close, he got captured. And his status was that of a free man. But in the reality of his everyday life for 12 years, he was a slave. And as we've been learning, Every Christian, by definition, has been set free from sin, which means that we're free from the rule and the reign and the tyranny of sin. We've been spiritually delivered. We are outside the realm of sin. As we said a few weeks ago, it's like we crossed the road, all right? And the devil can't come across that road anymore and threaten us or take us. We have left that domain. But 1 John 5, look at this. It says, we know that everyone fathered by God does not go on sinning, the one fathered by God keeps them and the evil one does not touch them. But notice this, John says the evil one cannot touch you. It doesn't say he can't talk to you. He can talk to you and me. He can frighten you. He can tempt you. He can persuade you. He can shout at you. He can threaten you. He can accuse you. He can beckon you. He can entice you. He can do all those things because in our spiritual dimension of our body, we have left sin, the Bible says, if you know Jesus as your Savior. But in the physical dimension, we have not. Look back at verse 12, where the Apostle Paul says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. See, I'm a new creation in Christ. Taylor is a new creation in Christ after camp. But my body is still my sinful body right now. It is still my mortal flesh. And it will be until the day I leave this planet. I have another body yet to come, a body that's fit for eternity. The Bible calls it a glorified body. I can't wait to get all my cartilage back in my body. I'm really excited about that, okay? But this body that I'm going to have is going to be equal in character and quality to what God has already done in my spirit, what he's already done there. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said this, the first man, Adam, became a living soul, but the last Adam, Jesus, was made a life-giving spirit. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man was the Lord from heaven. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's where we are now. We bear the image of the man of dust. But he says, we will eventually, the day will come 
we will bear the image of the man of heaven. But even as a new creation in Christ spiritually, sin is still a very real threat to me physically. All right, in my mortal flesh, sin can have tremendous power over my earthly existence. Look at verse 16 again. When you offer yourself to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey. Notice the key word there is the word obey. Also the word offer, you see. In the immortal words of Bob Dylan, everybody got to serve somebody, you know? And the very nature of our humanity is that we were made to serve someone beyond ourselves. And by the way, look at that word offer there. The word Paul uses literally means hand yourselves over. Hand yourselves over. All of us offer ourselves. We all hand ourselves over to one of two great powers in our reality. One on the one hand is sin, and the other hand, Paul says, is grace. Both take power over a man or a woman who offers themselves to it. And Paul says here, if you hand yourself over to sin, you set in operation a basic principle of life. In your flesh, you can become a slave to sin. John chapter eight, Jesus said this, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, but if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And I know you've noticed this, but there are so many things in this world that have such power to just grip us and control us. You know, I tell people all the time, it's easy to lose 10 pounds. I've done it dozens of times, you know? <laughs> okay, I do it all the time. It's just a roller coaster, right? Things like anger and fear, worry, alcohol, gambling, online shopping, pornography, lying, drugs, sex, greed. The list goes on and on. So many, of these th- so many things in this world have the potential to take power over our lives. Why? Because they, they stimulate our, our brain, the chemicals in our brain, and they become so powerful and they become so addictive. And things like shopping and, and anger and lying, pornography, et cetera, et cetera, we become addicted to the chemical changes in our brain that come about when we indulge ourselves in those things. And I want to show you a little chart real quick. Think about this. A lapse, you, know, you kind of fall off the wagon. A lapse becomes an indulgence. And that indulgence, it can grow into a habit. And then a habit can actually become your master. And it happens to all of us. And I want you to know this too. Sin is always going to take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, hurt you more than you ever thought it would, and cost you more than you ever dreamed you would pay. Always. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of bondage. That's what the Apostle Paul says here. You have been set free from sin. The price has been paid. You have been redeemed from the slave market. And with Jesus as your Savior, God's word to you is this. You are dead to sin. You are alive to Christ. You are set free. And if you resist the devil, he has to flee. That's not true of a non-believer. When they resist the devil, he doesn't have to go anywhere or do anything. 
But in Christ, because you are set free, because of Jesus' presence within you, you now have authority when he whispers, when he entices, when he threatens, when he accuses, you have authority over that. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, your enemy, the devil, roams around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Be firm in your faith and resist him. He can roar, he can shout, he can threaten, but ultimately, if I listen to that, it's because I offered myself to it. It was my choice because I've been set free. The second thing that can happen is that sin will shackle you in shame. You know, every day <laughs> I have a trek. I go to Pakasak every day for tea. And uh, I don't know, it's about a year or two ago, I guess. Uh, I don't know if everybody knows this. I used to teach at the middle school and I taught science for about three or four years and I taught a health class for three or four years. And this health class, a big unit we had was abstinence-based sex education. And so, man, I'm up there every day. I worked hard at it. I won't lie to you guys. Some of y'all were my former students, you know, but I really, really was passionate about this subject because I wanted to see kids, you know, protected from the consequences of, you know, going out and indulging and lapsing into and being enslaved by, you know, sexual sin. And so I worked hard on this unit. So I'm there in Pakistan, and uh, there's this young lady that walked in. She said, Mr. Sharp, you remember me? I said, oh, yeah. You know, we kind of got caught up a little bit. And I said, well, wait, what's been going on in your life, you know, since the teens? And I don't remember all the details, but man, her life had been hard. And she'd had kids with several dads. And she got real quiet for a minute. She said, uh, I should have listened to you, Mr. Sharp. And I said, hey, it's okay. It's never too late for the Lord to work. And I'll never forget, she just kind of lowered her head and kind of spun around and just walked out the store. And I could just sense the burden of regret that she felt. And I didn't want to make her feel that way. I wanted to bring grace into her life. But just the weight of shame that she felt and regret just was so powerful. You know, every one of us here, you know, we can all look back on something that's left a stain on our hearts. You know, like gravy on a white t-shirt, right? It just never seems to go away. That stain never seems to go away. And you try not to notice it. You try not to think about it. But when there's a stain on a white shirt, that's all you see, right? And it pops up again and again. And Paul is telling you and I here, when we deliberately hand ourselves over to sin, it leaves an indelible imprint on your heart and your mind. Look at the second half of verse 19. He says, You used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and ever-increasing wickedness. Now... Offer them in slavery to righteousness and holiness. And if you want to understand that, what that means a little bit better, uh, we're on YouTube. Go back and listen to last week. We talked about what it means to offer yourself to God. He said, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from righteousness. And what benefit or what fruit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? You see that word impurity there? It means something like corruption or decay. And then look at that phrase, ever-increasing wickedness. And literally in the Greek, it means something like this, lawlessness on top of lawlessness on top of lawlessness, sin upon sin upon sin. Shame does that to us, doesn't it? And we feel shame when we sin and we lose something of our sense of worth. You know, why would I do that? What's wrong with me that that would happen? 
And that's just the devil accusing us. But it's a strange mindset because then we start going deeper and deeper into the sin. And there's just sin upon sin upon sin. And we're like, I just don't deserve any better. And the shame just builds and builds and builds as we go deeper and deeper. And finally, things just begin to just fall apart. Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah said, from, this is God speaking through his prophet to Israel. Your wickedness will bring its own punishment. Your turning from me will shame you. You will see what an evil, bitter thing it is to abandon the Lord your God. Long ago, I broke the yoke that oppressed you and tore away your chains of slavery. But still you said, I will not serve you. You know, all of us can think of hurtful things that we've done that have hurt ourselves, hurt other people. And there are things that we've said, things that we did, and it puts a strain on relationships for years. And those things are painful, even after the fact. You ask yourself, why is shame so painful? We know, I had a cut on my thumb a few weeks ago, and I was doing rec out here at VBS. We had a big water day. We were kind of in the mud and all that stuff. And this cut on my thumb got infected and uh, got bacteria in it, I guess. And my thumb started swelling. And it got really painful. And uh, it was really, really tough. And I started losing the feeling in my thumb. It got so bad. And I really got kind of freaked out a little bit. And I was at an elders meeting and I was talking to uh, Tony about it. And I, I said, man, what do you got to do? And Craig said, you need some antibiotics? Yeah, just no big deal. And Tony said, yeah, I knew a guy who lost his thumb. He had to cut it off because he had to cut <laughs> like, you know, So, man, I'm, I'm on the phone, man. It's like, right now, I got to go to the doctor, man. You know, up here preaching. Hey, everybody. You know? <laughs> But what happens there is that the immune system, when you have an infection, it aggressively attacks the invader. And there's a fever, there's a high cell count, you know, et cetera, et cetera. If the infection is severe enough, your immune system will actually damage, uh, you know, parts of your body trying to fight it. And I want you to think about this. Why is shame so painful? Shame is your body, I'm sorry, your soul's immune response to sin. The sin's not supposed to be there. You've been set free. You're alive to Christ. Someone without Jesus, they probably don't feel the shame. But you do. It's not supposed to be there. It doesn't belong. And so your soul that's been brought to life in Jesus aggressively reacts to this foreign invader. It's an aggressive response to something that's not supposed to be there. And so David said this in Psalm 38, there's no health in my bones because of my sin. My wrongdoings are stacked higher than my head. They are a weight that's way too heavy for me. I'm worn out, completely crushed. I groan because of my miserable heart. I would just say this today, that if you're here today and you say, that's me, man, I'm groaning. My heart is miserable. Man, do the deep work. Do the deep work. Lord, is there something I need to make right with you? Is there an invader in my soul? Is there an infection in my soul that I need to make right with you? Because Jesus is the great physician. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He will forgive our sins. And what's that? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Man, the big shot comes in and the antibiotics go in your body. And next thing you know, you're set free. Set free. And the last thing is this. Number three is that sin is going to spread death in your life. He's like, how do you spread death? Look at verse 21. He said, those things that you used to do, those things result in death, he says. But now 
You have been set free. You become slaves to God. The result is eternal life. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Look at the word wages there for a moment in 623. That word also here means also rations. You know, think about uh, the daily rations. Like if you're a soldier on the battlefield, but also the daily rations of a slave. See, if you're a slave in the Roman times, you weren't fed well at all. You know, if they had some barley left over or something like that, or like they're having fish that night, hey, here's the heads and the tails, you know, make some soup out of that. Here's some barley. You know, that's the rations that you would get as a slave. In fact, they're just now finding this out as they're digging through Pompeii. They recently found some slave quarters and, you know, that were buried underneath that volcanic ash. They were amazed at how poorly the slaves were treated in some parts of Roman society. That bowl of barley. Remember the prodigal son that Jesus talked about? He was so hungry that he longed for the food that the pigs were eating there as he slopped the pigs. In James chapter one, James says, each person is tempted when their own evil desire lures them away and entices them. And then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin becomes full grown and gives birth to death. What do Paul and James mean by death being in your life. You can look at the characteristics of physical death and understand the reality of spiritual death that they are talking about. When we sin deliberately as believers, there are three elements of physical death that seep into our lives. Number one is darkness. You know, throughout the scriptures, you see those people who are in the dark they cannot see the light of truth. They cannot see all of reality. They're like, God, I need to hear from you. God, I need to see you. I'm reading my Bible. I, don't seem, I, can't, I can't seem to understand any of it. Why is that? Because there's sin that's a, you know, leaving you in darkness because of spiritual death is spread in your life. And Jesus taught us that we do have spiritual eyes. Paul talks about our spiritual eyes, the eyes of our heart. And sin damages your spiritual eyesight. You can't see all of reality the way that you should see it. And then you make poor choices because you're groping around in the dark. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, the eye is a light for the body. If your eyes, your eyes of your heart, are healthy, your whole body, your heart, your soul will be full of light. But if your eyes are evil or diseased, your whole body will be full of darkness and you have the worst darkness. The other one is debilitation. You know, a dead body can't move, right? And there's a loss of strength that comes with willful and deliberate sin. It's like a burden to carry. And when you as a believer deliberately sin, when I as a believer deliberately sin, it's like the hand of God is heavy on you and it just weighs you down. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, let us throw off the sin that entangles us. Gotta throw that off. Psalm chapter 40 Troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. It goes back to what we said a moment ago. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails within me. I'm just tired. I'm just so tired. I'm so weary. And you do see that with people laboring under the burden of sin. And the last one's decay. You know, eventually when the body is dead, one of the symptoms of death is decay. You know, some Roman emperors were known to inflict a, a hideous punishment on murderers. You probably have heard this. They would chain the corpse of the murder victim 
to the backs of the murder murderer. And under the penalty of death, no one was allowed to remove this dead body from the condemned person. And it's almost unimaginable to even think about. People who committed the worst crimes, they were sentenced to carry around what was called dead weight. That's where that phrase comes from, dead weight. And during that process of decomposition, the, purpose, the person who had this corpse chained to their back, they couldn't work, they, they couldn't eat, they couldn't be around anybody, they were alone, they were hungry, they were starving, they would just go mad. And eventually the decay and the disease from the corpse would seep into their own body and they would die a slow and painful death. Galatians chapter six, Paul wrote this. Do not be deceived. God will not be made a fool. Or a person will reap what he sows. The person who sows to his own flesh will reap corruption or decay from his flesh. You know, sometimes when you read that phrase, corruption from the flesh, what does that mean? What does that look like? Sometimes you hear people say, I hate my life. What are they saying? My, my life is just miserable. It's just, it's just nauseating to me. Have you ever felt that way? Like your whole life experience is kind of like a stench in your nostrils? Yeah, sin can do that. And so I want to kind of end with a story today. All right? Imagine a sheep. I'm going to call him Lester, okay? Lester the lamb on a farm. Like I've been around here lately. It's a really hot day. He walks past the pig pen. He sees a pig wallowing in the mud. And he says to the pig, it sure is hot today. And the pig says, what are you talking about? It's great in here. Man, we pigs, we're cool. We're cool. And Lester takes his little hoof and he reaches under the fence and he, he puts his little hoof in the mud. And he says, wow, that is cool in there. Man, that's not bad. Feels pretty good. And one of the pigs is rolling around in the mud and he loves it there. And he says, you should join us. Come on in, Lester. Lester says, I'm a sheep. I don't belong in the pig pen. And the pig snorts back. You don't know what you're missing. And the next day, it's hot again. He goes back over to the fence and he sticks his hoof under the fence again. He's like, wow, man, that's pretty cool in there. That's pretty cool. It'd be awesome to just like go all in, you know, and be really cool. This is a great illustration for kids, by the way. <laughs> and it's so hot. It's so miserable. And Lester just keeps thinking, man, anything is better than out here. Anything is better than this. And he makes a fateful choice. He backs up about five or 10 yards from the fence and he runs and he jumps and he just clears the fence and boom, he hits the mud. And man, it is a party, all right? I mean, who doesn't like playing in the mud? We made a mud pit for the kids several years ago. It's awesome, okay? Mud pits are great. And he's, he's in the mud. The pigs and the pigs are like hooping and hollering. Yeah, way to go, Lester. Good job, Lester. And he's, it's awesome. And the mud is cool, it feels great, and the pigs are so glad to have some new blood in the group, right? And he laughs and he plays with the pigs, and soon all of his snow-white wool is caked in black mud. And he spends the whole day wallowing in the mud, mucking it up with the pigs. Notice how I did that. Mucking it up with the pigs, his new friends. Evening comes, Farmer Josh comes to slop the pigs. He doesn't want Josh to see him there, so he hides. The pigs run to the slop and the farmer leaves and Lester comes out of hiding. He looks around, there's no grass. I'm in the pig pen, there's no grass here. And he smells the slop. Is this what you guys eat? Yeah, it's great. I haven't eaten all day, I'm so hungry. 
and it's awful, but he eats it anyway. This goes on for a couple of days, but the longer he stays in the pig pen, the more miserable he gets. Playing in the mud is great for a while, but who wants to live there unless you're a pig? Pretty soon the mud is caked around his eyes, his ears. He can't see or hear like he used to. And his wool isn't like the hair on the pigs. The mud just kind of packs onto him. And he gets so heavy, he can barely move. And then there's the smell. And he didn't notice it at first. But then one of the pigs relieved themselves in front of him. He's like, oh my gosh, that's what this mud is? <laughs> that's why we have mud? <laughs> it's just nauseating to him. And all of a sudden, Lester says to himself, I hate it here. I hate it here. Darkness falls. Lester the lamb looks out at the meadow in the moonlight, that moonlight over that green grass, and he says, I just want to go home. I want to go home. And so Lester backs up to the barn, and he tries to run, but the mud is so slick, and now he's so heavy with so much mud packed on his wool, and he tries to jump the fence. He hits the top rung, and he falls back down. And he tries again and again. He keeps jumping, but he's trapped. And the pigs get kind of mad at Lester. Hey, you trying to leave? Are we not good enough for you? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Why are you trying to leave us? And so Lester goes back up to the corner. He lays down to sleep. And the tears roll down his mud-stained cheeks. I hate my life. The next day, Lester sees the farmer, Farmer Josh. And it occurs to him, he could get me out of here but I'm so dirty. And he looks, he says, this mud has stained my beautiful wool. Who wants gray wool? And he's just heartbroken. And so he hides from Farmer Josh every day. How could he want me? How could he love me or care about me? Just look at me. So day after day, night after night, Lester just curls up in the corner all alone. He's in a world where he doesn't belong And the longer he stays, the more miserable he becomes. And finally, he can't take it anymore. And Farmer Josh comes to slop the pigs. His shepherd is walking by, walks up to the fence, and Lester comes out of hiding. He comes out of hiding, and he begins bleeding at the top of his lungs, crying out for help, crying out for mercy, crying out for grace, crying out for freedom. And Farmer Josh looks down and he walks to the pig pen and he says, Lester, you ready to leave? Yeah. And Farmer Joshua walks into the mud and he picks Lester up and he holds him close to his chest. And Lester notices that his mud is getting all over Farmer Josh, but Joshua doesn't seem to mind. Farmer Joshua takes Lester over to the well, puts him underneath the spigot, and he begins to pump the water. And the water begins to wash over Lester's wool. He takes his big, strong hands, and he begins to wipe all that mud off of Lester's wool. And when Lester's wool is white as snow, Joshua tells him, Now, Lester, you go back where you belong. And this time, you stay there. There's a beautiful, beautiful picture in a passage where the Apostle Paul writes about marriage. And it kind of gets overlooked because it's about Jesus and us, the church. 
because it's kind of nestled in this passage about marriage. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, Christ loved the church. Christ loved you and gave himself for you so that he might make you holy by cleansing you, washing you with water and the word. And he might present you to himself in all your glory, all your glory, without a spot or a wrinkle or anything of the kind, but holy and without fault. Beautiful, beautiful passage. And I don't know where you might be today, what you might be struggling with. We're all struggling with something. Let's be honest, though. There might be some people here who are struggling with something that really is a threat. It's a threat to your marriage. It's a threat to your finances. It's a threat to your health. It's a threat to your family. My exhortation to you as somebody who loves you would be cry out to your shepherd and ask for your freedom to be a reality today. Ask for your freedom to become a reality in your life. Let's bow our heads today for a moment if we could. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want to ask you just to think about all of us, all of us, starting with me, are Lester the Lamb. You notice the name I gave to the Lamb. (laughs) People call me Lester all the time. Lester the Lamb. And so many times in my life that I found myself trapped in the mud. We cry out to the Lord, say, Lord, would you please deliver me, set me free. And so there may be someone here today You just need to go before the Lord in a very real and very powerful way and say, Lord Jesus, I cry out to you from the depths of my heart. I need my freedom to be a reality for me today. And so I would just encourage you with all my heart to go before the Lord, be honest to God today, like perhaps like you never have been before, come out of hiding and be honest to God and say, God, would you please make my freedom a reality, the freedom you paid to give me, Jesus to set me free from slavery, Lord. Make me like Solomon Northrup, Lord. And Lord, give me my freedom today. Ask him for that today. And he's always willing to give it, always willing to grant it. There may be some of us here today who are kind of lapsing a little bit, kind of indulging a little bit. And you haven't, let's be honest, we, we tend to, we tend to uh, overestimate our strength and underestimate the power of sin. And if we've been doing that, we might, need to go before the Lord today and say, Lord, there's that thing that's kind of creeping into my life. And Lord, would you give me power to say no to that, to walk away from that? Because Lord, I don't want to take power over me. And so I want to be quiet for a couple minutes here. I just need us all to do some business with God today and talk to him about the depths of our heart. And I'll pray for us here in another moment. And Lord Jesus, I just want to thank you so much today that you are the good shepherd. And Lord, when we go where we're not supposed to go and do what we're not supposed to do and get ourselves so dirty, Lord Jesus, you're always so faithful to lift us up, carry us off, and wash us. I just want to thank you so much for that today, Jesus. And I just thank you so much, Lord Jesus, that your blood does wash us as white as snow. But Father, I just ask that for all of us here today, Lord, that, Lord, if there are any of us here who've had 
death or decay or debilitation just creep into our lives and seep into our lives because of our sin. I just pray, Jesus, for freedom today for all of us, a new, a new breath of freedom, Father, in our lungs. And Lord, we just ask this of you in your name and for your glory, that we might be your church, holy and spotless, without wrinkle or blemish. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.